This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are back this week with another installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. This is, I'm going to call it... A mega installment. We are doing, for the first time, I think, we are doing a two-parter in one episode. We've watched well, two episodes. to be fair, we have done two-hour episodes on Dateline. What's up with That's Pam true. or whatever that one was? Was a two-hour... <laughs> you always call it that. It was the thing about Pam, but you call yeah. it what? Like it's a musical. What's up with Pam? <laughs> <laughs> like it's an ad for cooking spray. Um <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know anything about the story, it was most definitely not about cooking spray. And I it think it's going to be a movie. They're making a movie I'm version of it. it. I is think Blumhouse most, is doing it. It is an exceptional episode of, of Dateline. I love Dateline, but oh my God, that episode was, in fact, that's how I sold it to you. I was like, you have got to watch What's Up With Pam. <laughs> And it wound up on the show. It's not called What's Up With Pam. But yes, okay. The thing about Pam. Right. That's right. We have done, we also, the murder of Jesse Valencia was a two-hour episode as well. So sometimes line. we've done two, but this one is actually broken into two parts. So if you're viewing prior to right. listening, or yes. Eric, say, do you know what time it is? Do you, it's disclaimer time. It's True Crime TV Club disclaimer time. It's time for the, the Jeopardy um, uh, game show rules. From Christopher Rice, from our announcer, Don Pardo. So the goal of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club is to serve up the episode or the documentary in question so that you don't feel like you or you feel like you have watched it and you don't need to watch it. Um, it is not a requirement that you watch it before listening to our podcast. However, we know that some people do enjoy doing that. So we want to tell you that today we are discussing the first two episodes of the third season of a show called The Case That Haunts Me, which is a favorite here at Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Really Club. do love it. It's remarkable. It's a Canadian show. It is. It's a Canadian show, and I think the cases they cover are exclusively Canadian, which we didn't realize the first time we did it. And we don't uh, care because we love Canada know. and Canadians. Love that um, just fine. And maybe they do cover some. We've only done two episodes so far, I think, from that. So maybe they they do have uh, crimes from other places, but I don't care. Like, this works just fine for me. It can all be Absolutely. Canada. So, as I said, third season, first two episodes, it's a two-parter, so both episodes have the same title. It's The Evil Fantasy, part one and two. And so, pretty packed, so I think we're going to get into it right away here. That's me telling Eric over FaceTime that that's enough clever yeah, banter. Yeah, I'm getting a enough look. Enough your tomfoolery. I'm getting a look. Well, I draw up the show notes for our episodes, and this is like a book. I had to, I took notes as I was watching the episode. And I'll just say this before we begin I, without spoiling anything I was aware of this case. 
I was, this is a way into this case that I was not aware of. I'm just yeah, going to put I mean, it that way. I think we'll let it unfold naturally. But yeah, I was surprised when we wound up with the case that we wound up with. Because when it mm-hmm. started, I was like in completely new territory. Right. Anyway, why don't you go ahead and begin? Because you know me, I'll start with banter at the drop of the hat. And then <laughs> there will be... There will be bantering about keto dieting and new recipes. All right. The uh, part one opens Toronto, Ontario, November 9th, 2012. Deb Harris, who is a detective in the 51st Division of the Toronto Police Service, gets a call from a detective, Rowan Keller, in Switzerland. I mean, says he has, uh, yeah. It was like, what the fuck? I, I was with Deb. Like, what is this about? And he says he has important information about a homicide. She digs a little bit, and he says it's in relation to a missing persons case there in Toronto. Skanda Navaratnam was origi- originally from Sri Lanka, was reported missing six days after he was last seen leaving a bar in Toronto's gay neighborhood, which is called The Village, affectionately. Uh, This disappearance happened in 2010. Keller, the Swiss detective, says he has a credible informant in Switzerland who says, are you sitting down? Skanda has become the victim of a cannibal. Deb needs a moment to process this, as I'm sure we did too at home. It was like, oh, wow, we're off in that direction. Jeez. Uh, The Swiss detective says our informant is never wrong. And I will send you documents that prove it. And he does. He sends Deb documents which proves that the authority led them to a cannibal serial killer based out of Slovakia. That uh, this guy was located via a fetish website called Zambian Meat. And the informant is now saying that while returning to this website... He met a Canadian man or someone who claimed to be a Canadian man who was operating under the screen name of Chef Mate 50. Can I just claimed- ask, were you ever able to tell if it was Zambian M-E-E-T or is it Zambian M-E-A-T? I, w- I think it was M-E-A-T. That's what I wrote in my notes, but I-, I was pretty confident what they were showing on screen was a recreation and not the actual website. That- but did you see, did they show that on screen? I never was like I able to, so. to be sure of it. They kept saying it, and I was like, is it really that on the nose? That's like, wow. Uh, you know, how does Zambia feel about that? You know what I mean? I just was, it was an odd... Well, I think it depends on aspect of the reporting because how many Zambian representatives are on the dark web because this is all happening on the dark web. And I'm like, what do websites look like on the dark web? Aren't they mostly code and really hard to figure out? I don't. Oh, it was on the dark web. I didn't. I think so. I think it was on the dark web. It wasn't like an app on somebody's cell phone. No, it (laughs) wasn't. Let's be serious. I don't know. Like, I didn't know that. Those are two things I did not get from the report. I was unclear about one of that, that question. And I didn't know that they had said it was on the dark web, but okay, sure. I will see. We will ask our party people, although nothing about this episode is going to feel like a party. I'm warning you. Um, No, the Toronto police, I believe are able to trace the IP of the individual identified by the informant to a resident named James Alex. Brunton. He's a married retiree. Wait, was he married or did I get that wrong? Yes. No, he was, he married, was married, had kids. Yeah, he was. Yeah. A, 
Uh, no priors, though. He had no priors. However, they put the guy under surveillance on the basis of this informant's statement. Um, the Toronto police then begin to dive into the website. And I'm just going to step in here and sort of tell you that part of what makes this show so good, and you know how I always bitch about bad reenactments here at True Crime TV Club. The reenactments are so high quality, you think you're watching like a scripted cop drama, a well-done scripted cop drama. Well, they drama. hire name actors. This is uh, the yeah. guy who played the detective was, can't remember, David something. He's a... Uh, um, Oh, what's it? She's uh, Ellen's ex. Ellen DeGeneres' ex. Portia de Rossi. No, no, no the uh, ex. Anne Hayes. Anne Hayes. She's Anne Hayes's husband. They met on a show called Men in the Trees. Um, oh, I didn't know that. And then, and then they married. I don't know if they're still together, but yeah, he's yeah, he's also um, on a, a Lifetime or is it Lifetime Hallmark Hallmark Mysteries series called. Uh, Eric, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Why your interest in this man's resume comes from the fact that why he seems to be a birder or no? You, yeah. We did this last time and we couldn't remember where the guy was from. The detective no, was familiar, but we couldn't remember. This time, I remember who the guy is yeah, and where and, he's from. And the actor also has Eric's type stamped on his forehead. It's like I could bit. hear you saying, "Come to a death. little bit." A little not bit. come he to is, daddy because that he is somewhat yeah. uh he is somewhat my uh more my my whatever right. but i think if he was a bigger deal if he meant more to me i would know what his his name is like yeah. i never forget henry cavill's name ever yeah absolutely okay um you were just gonna inject some little bits of cheer here and there where we can because this is a really really dark journey we're about to take okay so the detectives dive into this website zambian meat and they learn that there's a lingo that the users use a chef is a cannibal an iron chef is a cannibal who has achieved promotion by serving a meal to another iron chef and a long pig is someone who wants to be eaten But a long um, pig is a cannibal term for human meat. Right. But th- that's also the term adopted by willing slaves who are willing to sign up to be murdered. To call and, themselves and, to be long right. pigs. So the thing that this series does is it focuses on the case that haunts me. It focuses in on a single real-life detective who is our narrator, and then it has a very high-quality actor play them in the reenactments. Our detective here is a guy named Hank Idzinga, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Wasn't that um, the name of the harbor in uh, What on Earth a couple of episodes ago? <laughs> that's maybe how you spelled it phonetically, but yeah, no. Um, so Hank is looking at this website, and he thinks a lot of this is performance and fantasy. It's very, very disturbing, but he doesn't believe a lot of these accounts are actually participating in murders or actual cannibalism. And they are, just- thank God. Yeah, it's very disturbing and elaborate role play happening in a dark corner of the internet. But they need to pursue this lead. So Debbie flies to Switzerland to interview the informant. And she's uh, introduced to him at the police station there. And his name is Marcos Dubac. Uh, And she asks him how he came to sort of be an informant on cannibal websites. And his story is that two years before, he suffered from a suicidal depression and came to believe that sacrificing himself to a cannibal would give his life greater meaning. And he found the website. He confirms Hank's suspicion 
that much of the site is fantasy role play, but he did discover a real cannibal on there, and that was the Slovo- uh, Slovakian, excuse me, serial killer that they referenced earlier in the show. When he began to engage, uh, and I assume that as a result of him being able to locate that guy, the police basically recruited him as a cannibal informant. I didn't imagine such a category existed because he continued to participate in the site, and that is where he met Chef Mate. And what he said tipped him off about Chef Mate was not his story about cannibalizing this missing man, Skanda. It was that he was very, he had a very sophisticated knowledge of security features and how to evade security cameras in particular as they discussed a possible meeting. He knew how to sort of bypass cameras at an airport or he appeared to. And he also referenced having an isolated farm where they could carry out uh, these brutal acts. And that was pretty much exactly similar to the Slovakian guy. He also had an isolated farm and all that sort of stuff. Right. He so, said the guys, the source says that when he was texting with chef mate, it was exactly the same as when he was talking to the Slovakian cannibal that he had also hooked up with or right. online anyway. But this is where I think Debbie maybe has the right to be a little bit pissed. She's flown all this yeah. way because what's revealed when she gets there is that this chef mate didn't actually confess to killing Skanda. He said he had eaten someone in Toronto and he preferred homosexuals. And Marcos, the informant, did a search online and found Skanda's case. And I don't know at this point if Chef Mate said he preferred, and this is the phrase they use throughout the episode, brown-skinned homosexuals, men of Middle Eastern descent or who appear to be of Middle Eastern descent. But whatever he said to Marcos was enough for Marcos to Google and find Scanda's missing person's case on the internet. Yeah, and so he just had sort of inferred that it was... um that it was Skanda, but he didn't actually have a confession. Yeah, I thought that was a real monkey wrench in the source early on. I was like, "Yeah, well, that's kind of speculation. And the police officer, the Swiss police officer, language barriers aside, seemed to present it to her as though it was actual knowledge of an actual crime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, But it is enough for Debbie to return to Toronto and open up a profile on all missing um, gay brown-skinned men from the village, from Toronto's gay neighborhood. And it turns out it's a number of them. Yeah. They immediately identify another possible victim who was closeted and lived west of Toronto. Um, Because his residence was actually outside of Toronto, his case got picked up by that jurisdiction. Uh, another jurisdiction from Hank and Debbie's. Uh, His car was found in a rural area, but several witnesses reported seeing him in the village at gay venues. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. 
At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Uh, so the uh, informant has identified, or the Toronto police, using the informant's tip, has have identified a guy. And let me get his name up. His last name is Brunton. I think it's James Alec Brunton. Yes, James Alec Brunton. He lives in what sounds like a suburb of Toronto called Peterborough. Uh, because they've now identified three possible victims, all missing, gay, or presumed to be gay based on what businesses they attended or frequented. Um, they place a tracker on Brunton's vehicle, and they also start a task force called Project Houston. They uh, also underco- go into his house and clone his computer. Yeah. I was like, wow, the laws are different in Canada, huh? Can you not do like, that here? I Well, I think you could, but I think it would require a really, like you would have to have a really pretty solid case against somebody to get a warrant that allowed you to secretly break into somebody's house and clone their computer without their knowledge um, and without presenting them with a warrant. Yeah. I I just thought it was a really unusual, it was like, wow, that is a different practice. I, I really, I would think that Americans would lose their minds if... And it's not Somebody the last could, time it happens in this episode. No, it is no. apparently it was apparently a reg, more regular practice in the. I, I don't disagree with their, you know, their results or even their choice, but it it struck me as a real legal difference. I could be wrong. Correct me, listeners, if you think I am, but I wouldn't think that in America that would be very easily possible without like an ISA warrant or something equally as significant as, mm-hmm. as that. The content of his computer reveals a lot of disturbing material. They find what they refer to as file fragments that are remnants of visits he made to a dating website that connected older and younger men. They are file fragments suggested that he at the least visited the profiles of the victims, but they don't necessarily suggest any more of that. So what looks instantly like a lead actually turns out to possibly be innocuous. Um, However, they look at his search history, and on the day after Skanda vanished, he looked for cannibal recipes and non-consensual torture. They also simultaneously find a video file that he deleted a few years ago, and they begin the process of trying to rebuild it. Remember this, because it becomes important later. The rebuilding process takes kind of a while. They find references to an accomplice named Nathan in a farm near Bancroft, which is a rural area of Canada, I think north of the city of Toronto. I may be wrong about that. They also find that Skanda's cell phone pinged off a cell tower between Peterborough, where Brunton lives, and Bancroft, the area where he refers in online conversations to having a farm, just before Skanda went missing. There also seem to be pictures on the computer of what might be the farm, 
but they're not very sure. And this is where it takes a really, I don't, I don't want to call it a side trip, but they set out in search of the farm and literally every creepy thing you, you could imagine them finding in the woods that isn't necessarily helpful to the case or related to the case they find. And I think my favorite was probably the boot tree. Do you remember yeah, the, the boot? The, yeah. the, sh- the boots in the tree. That was really, yeah, they actually took them down and tested them to see if they connected. But it was like, whose boots are these and why are they hanging in this tree? That's really I, weird. Uh, yeah. It was like a Christmas tree covered with uh, with old boots. With old boots. It was just completely weird. Okay. So they are actually physically surveilling Brunton as well, not just his computer. P.S. Follow- none, yeah. none of the shoes matched any of the victims. So right. it was they just them. a creepy tree where people had hung boots by their laces. And they found a farm with a dungeon underneath a barn or something, but it had like nothing to you do, do with the case. So I think this is a testament to the fact that Canadian farms are way creepier than American farms, or is that is unexpectedly? That, is that yeah, I would say so. I I wouldn't have thought that was possible, and maybe not uh, Louisiana farms, but mm-hmm. in a general, more wholesome American setting, uh, certainly more creepy than uh, by and large. I, right. I would be I'd be willing to put Louisiana farms up against pretty much anybody just because Louisiana manages to be creepier than almost anywhere else on earth. But uh, Canada is very closely connected to, um, Mm -hmm. to Louisiana because the Acadian French, the Cajuns actually came from Canada as they were escaping and settled in Louisiana. So there's the connection. They didn't bring their boots because they all left them all on the boot tree. Hanging in the Uh, tree. So there you are. That's bad history from Eric. Please call in with corrections or write bad Louisiana history. Right. (laughs) Trip home with Eric Shawquin. All right. So they're actually physically surveilling Brunton at the same time. They're following him and the cops follow him to a gay male strip club in downtown Toronto. While he's there, he hooks up with a young male stripper at the club, and this was my favorite little sleight of hand, and somehow convinces him to join him at the hotel after. Yeah, it's called money. That's probably how he did it. I don't know why. He gave him $100 and said there was more like that in room 507 at the Marriott right down the street. But the stripper is white, blonde, and 19, and they have placed a man who appears, an undercover cop who appears to be of Middle Eastern descent in the club, hoping to hook Brunton. And Brunton completely ignores the guy and goes after this this white kid. OK, so because hmm. the site that they found him on is where older guys hook up with younger guys, which I think right. they have not paid stricter enough attention. Uh, to. Do you think the undercover guy was uh, too old to get his Just attention? saying. Um, I just, they didn't mention that at all. And certainly the guy they cast in the recreation was certainly older than the guy he picked up. So who knows? But yeah, they also were like, they picked somebody who was like their missing victims and they were Mm -hmm. older men. They were middle-aged men. Right. Remember the deleted video file that I mentioned earlier? I do. Tell us more. They managed to reassemble. You might not want to sound quite so cheerful when I tell you what the video was of. I've um, seen all of this. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. I get it. They, um, they put the file back together, and it turns out that it's video taken secretly of teenage boys undressing in a hockey locker room. They're unaware and that they're we being left filmed. out mentioning earlier, but in Peterborough, um, Mr. What's-His-Fuck, uh, chef mate, um, 
is also a coach of a of an amateur hockey league of uh, awesome. young people, and that's where he's apparently um, filmed this uh, a hidden camera video of them naked in the locker room while calling out on camera well there's fr- i put out fresh towels for you boys and here by this basket oh, so God. all you have to do is take off all your clothes and come in here and get one so that uh, i can get a good shot of you apparently was, or some oh, words to that effect they uh, do you think that that's actual audio that they showed do you think it was from the no. actual video or do you think it was part of the recreation no. i can't imagine that it would be from the actual video but who knows like i don't know uh, Oh, I don't know how things go awful. up there, go up there, but would, it was, yeah, it was pretty clear what was going was on. Hideous. And they then set out to try and prove for certain that it was chef mate in the video so that they would at, you know, at minimum have him on a production of kitty porn. Right. They also find something else in his computer. They find that he has been corresponding with a kid in uh, Colorado named B- Byron Duvall. And the kid is under 18. He's a teenager. He's, I think he's 18 now, but he was underage at the time they started he their correspondence. He was 14 when they started corresponding. So dramatically underage. And while still underage, the chef convinces him to do something really nefarious. Okay, and here's the thing. You were asking earlier about the website. Did you pause it when they showed the correspondence between the two of them? The, the Brunton gets the kid to agree to a contract, basically, and they show something they show. It's either a recreation or it's the actual contract on the screen, but they don't tell you the contents of it. I paused it and made the mistake of reading it. And let me tell you, I needed like a few minutes to recover because I did not read it because it, eating oh. writing a contract to be eaten by somebody. I just really that was not a thing I was going to read, even if it was just a put up job from the prop. It's guy. beyond that. I mean, it was an elaborate fantasy about torture, murder, enslavement, and then being eaten by by Brunton. And the kid signed the contract. Now, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have to say this, but. Illegal contracts are not enforceable, so we're, this yeah. isn't a story of like contract law run amok. Thank God. Um, they find <laughs> the kid sign a contract in abrogation of the law. They find Byron. They fly to Grand Junction, Colorado. It's 2013 now. By the time this is happening, Byron says the whole thing was supposed to be a joke. He never planned on going through with it. Chef Mate started sending him emails, however, on his 18th birthday. As if, you know, he expected the kid to deliver. And they do a little more digging and they reveal that he was, in fact, paying the kid to send these photographs of him posed in these really disturbing situations. And they show a photo that I think is a recreation of his hands tied and a blindfold. Still more child pornography. Byron says that Brunton mentioned an accomplice named Nathan and that they would come to Colorado together so they could have their way with him. Yikes. Oh, yeah. This was, uh, yeah. Um, meanwhile, they're working to confirm that Brunton actually did make the locker room video, as you pointed out. Um, but they, they're confident in advance of that of saying, go ahead and charge him, um, or they're never going to find these missing guys if Brunton's actually connected to them. So an undercover operator posing as a potential slave who has met Brunton on the Zambian Meat website um, makes enough of a connection with Brunton that they agree to have him fly, fictionally, of course, to Toronto Airport. 
Uh, Brunton believes that the guy is going to let himself be taken to his farm, killed and eaten. Meanwhile, the police are trailing Brunton. Um, Brunton is driving to the airport. He's behaving like a man who is fully about to participate in this thing he has discussed with the undercover guy online. And then all of a sudden, before he gets to the airport, he pulls off to the highway. He stops by the side of the road. He turns around and he goes back home. And I think it's Debbie, the original detective who got the call from the Swiss detective who's following him, or that's how they depicted it. That's the, how they depicted it. I would doubt yeah. that that was actually the truth, but maybe. But right. yeah, you, because you recognize her, they have her following him, but I would doubt that she would be the one who would actually be doing the following. Right. So they By decide herself. to bring... They decide to bring him in. Well, they, they go into detail. It was a huge surveillance operation because, and this is the thing that, and I've talked to cops about this for research purposes. It's like, we don't just slap a wire on people and we don't just send undercover people in. Like, it's a huge risk to a human life and we take right. it really seriously. So they had a lot. They had air surveillance, helicopters up at a certain altitude, all that sort of stuff. Um, but they decide that they need to arrest him before he gets back home or this this shot is going to be blown. So they do. They bring him in. He says this was all just role play. We were just, you know, it's just fantasy. Like, you know, most of the people on the site, he does. He claims he doesn't know any of the victims, the missing people that they've identified. He says, I recognize Skanda, but only from a nightclub in the village we both used to frequent. Um, and Hank, the lead detective, who's sort of our focus, he believes that for most of the interview, Brunton's being relatively truthful, that, it, that he's sincere in his insistence that he doesn't know these guys. That all of his boasting about having eaten people and served them and whatever is actually fat, just bravado and part of his role play. They ask him about this accomplice, Nathan. He says he's a stripper he, messed, he met who was, quote, a messed up kid. Excuse me, reading a little ahead in my <laughs> notes there and inventing new words. Um <laughs> But so maybe reading isn't the term you want to use. <laughs> Caffeining is probably more like it. That's, um, a, that's like I like that better. Yeah. Um, but they've got him dead to rights, as you like to say, Eric Shaw Quinn, on the child porn charges. Uh, the, uh, the they have the video and they have the photos from Byron that he paid for. Yeah, and which they broke out to good effect with the the good actors in this recreation in the in the the interrogation room. And I will say just as a side note that one of the other things that they accomplished with this episode was creating as they were, um, was something really special that they created during the, uh, the pursuit of this suspect. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So what was really, I thought, an exceptional achievement on the part of this particular um, true crime TV show was that they there was 
actual dramatic tension. I was tensed up during mm-hmm. the the whole interception with the guy waiting at the airport and they were on mm-hmm. the way and they were going to try and pick him up and the guy was going to be alone with somebody who he thought was a cannibal who had actually eaten something and the woman was following in the car. I actually was like, okay, don't fast forward, don't fast forward, just just mm-hmm. wait and see how this plays out. This is but mm-hmm. I, it got me. Now it wasn't, you know, like I, I, it wasn't the French connection or something, but it was, it was up there. I was like, that is a really, I thought that was really a, a remarkable achievement for a true crime TV show. Cause usually it's, you know, just the facts, ma'am. It's even the right. recreations are just sort of like, even though they did a great job on the last one of these we watched, um, I didn't feel stressed out about it, but this was, mm-hmm. this brought it a, gave an immediacy to the telling of the story that I thought added a degree of almost theatricality to the right. uh, presentation. And again, not to spoil anything, but because I knew where this was headed and I wasn't expecting this to be the path there, I was really on pins and needles for that reason because I know the names of the players in the case we're about to end up in, and I didn't know Brunton's name. I didn't know how I didn't, he connected I didn't to know we were going to end up in that case. Right. I I still thought this was an entirely different case at this yeah. point. So I had no idea where we were headed. So as we said at the beginning, this was a two-parter. So with the revelation that Brunton is not actually connected to any of the missing men, we close out part one and we start part two, which begins on June 7th, 2013. And so now Project Houston has basically, it, it's digging in on the profiles of the three missing men that they've uh, d- turned up and they're looking desperately for any connections between the three of them and the absence of Brunton being any kind of unifying right. um, predator. They've obtained computers for two of the victims and usernames for some of their associates. The detectives canvassed the gay neighborhood and it's then that the case bumps up against another high-profile case and I'm, I'm sorry, Eric, to do this to you again because every time this case comes up, it teases that Christopher and Eric's true crime TV club question of will Eric ever watch Don't Fuck With Cats on Netflix? And I'm not pressuring you and I never will, but this is the case that was um, covered in that Netflix documentary series, which is that... No, I didn't know that was... Mm-hmm. That was included in that particular case. The, my knowledge of that of the case that we're coming up to actually came from a really extensive, really good, well-written, in-depth article in Vanity Fair magazine okay. after the, the big bust. I'm pretty sure it was Vanity Fair, um, but okay. it was a really great—it may have been New York Times, but I think it was a Vanity Fair article about it. That's really my only knowledge of that particular case. And the case that we are talking about is the serial killer, Luca Magnata. And if you don't know a lot about this oh. case, Luca Magnata. Oh, no, that's not the serial killer case I'm even talking about. I'm I know. About I, I didn't think one. you knew what I was talking about. The don't fuck with cats guy is Luca Magnata. Oh, I this didn't know guy, that. Yeah. This is a guy who um, performed sort of diabolical acts killing animals on the internet and so outraged people that he started a kind of international internet driven manhunt to find out who he was and where he was and he escalated to killing a gay Chinese man that he picked up I think through a dating site in Montreal or Montreal as they say in Canada and his arrest happens pretty much simultaneous with this investigation and they're thinking Canadian gay cannibal how many can there be 
Um, the detective and he had been and he had worked as a stripper at Remington's, which was where um, Chef Mate's associate Nathan had worked as a stripper. And they were wondering, is this the stripper Nathan that Chef Mate was talking about? So off they went to Montreal, Montreal to um, uh, to pursue that that line of the investigation. And when they get there, the lead detective on the Magnata case says to them, well, it just so happens that Magnata used to refer to himself as Nathan in text messages he sent to people. So the lead, and that's information that's never been released to the public. Right. He was blown away when they said that the the other guy had called him Nathan because they've never mentioned that to anyone outside of the investigation. But... And this is where I was like, this seems like a larger story that they didn't really have time for. The lead detectives in the Magnata case basically won't let the Toronto detectives talk to Magnata about another case because they've got everything lined up to send him to trial and they don't want to jeopardize any of it. I'm not really sure about the thinking there or why that, how that exactly follows. That but makes I know perfect that- sense to me because once he's in jail, you can then convict him and try him for anything you want to, but they want right. to make sure that they make the case stick, that they make stick and they don't want to have anybody else come in who might say or do anything that would uh, might uh, uh, cast dirt on their investigation, you know, like right. some sort of procedural thing or, a disclosure thing or anything else they wanted to be that I thought that made perfect sense to me because after the trial, they could then charge him with other stuff and investigate him and interview him. Right. Um, but they do give him, they do hand over his computers and cell phones to the Toronto detectives. Um, right. And after three weeks of analysis, Mag- Magnata's files don't yield any connection to the missing men in Toronto at all. And they How about any missing cats? I know, right? And yeah, no, I I don't think they included cats in their whatever. But also, oh, I left this out. Magnata had lived in Peterborough, the same suburb where Burton lived. A couple of blocks from Burton. Yeah. I think he really was Burton's friend, Nathan. I don't like the other stuff is wider open, but I, I think he really was actually the Nathan he was talking about. Right. However, the consequence of this for the case is pretty extreme because they no longer have any evidence that it's a homicide. And so it becomes three missing persons cases again. And so Hank, our lead detective, is asked or basically made to leave Project Houston because he's a homicide guy. And this is now a missing persons case again. He goes off. But meanwhile, the Toronto detectives are continuing to dig into any connection between the three missing persons. And they find the screen name for a man who has had some sort of internet interaction with all three of them and his screen name is silver fox two x's 51 and this is when we begin to arrive at the case that i'm already familiar with is this and this is the serial case the killer case i was talking about that was detailed in in uh vanity fair right skanda had written down the screen name in one of his notebooks um they identify the individual associated with it and did i really delete his name from my notes his name is Bruce MacArthur. Did I get that right? Because yes. I literally I think, think so. I deleted it from my notes. That's okay. what I would go. That's what I would go with. That's who I, what I think his name is. Yeah. They bring him in. He is cool as a cucumber. He says, yeah, I had a relationship with one of the victims, um, a man named Majid. Um, I've, you know, brushed up against all three of them in the neighborhood. I'm familiar with them. I've seen their faces on posters, but yeah, that's about it. You know, um, and they don't, you know, 
they don't really get anything out of the interview or he doesn't seem to trip off any alarm bells for the um, detectives. I think some of this is maybe some assumptions on the part of straight detectives that all gay men have slept with every other gay men on dating apps, particularly in smaller <laughs> communities. Which and is I in, don't know. Maybe that's true in the village in, in Toronto. I'm not from there, but it seems a bit of a stretch. Right. So years go by. Uh it's 2014. It's April 2014. The cases are opened and unsolved. And I think that's when the Bruce MacArthur interview happens. In June 2017, Debbie, our original detective who got the call from Switzerland, retires and is now working for the office of the fire marshal. Hank is back in homicide. There's really no task force operating that's looking into any of this. And that's when a missing persons report comes in for a Turkish gay man named Salim Essen. And then... Another missing persons report comes in two months later for Andrew Kinsman. Now, Andrew is a white guy, but he's also a gay male from the village. He was the superintendent for his building. They go to his apartment. They find no signs of forced entry or a struggle. But in his calendar is an entry. And this is a cal- an actual calendar, not a digital one, hanging on the wall of his kitchen. 3 p.m., Bruce. A new task force is set up to investigate these disappearances called Project Prism. Something has changed about Toronto's gay village in the interim, aside from the fact that a lot of gay men are really pissed off that all of these guys have disappeared and nothing appears to have been done about it. But by 2017, video cameras have gone up all over the city. And that means they have a lot yes. of footage to sift through around the disappearance. Not unlike of my my ring cam in the hall. Absolutely, and which the, <laughs> the mysterious assault of the very weird cat. <laughs> the very weird cat, which we talked about several episodes ago. I think it was three episodes ago. Anyway, um, there are no hairless cats in this story that we are aware of. Uh, they do find footage of Andrew Kinsman getting into a red Dodge Caravan parked outside of his building. They, they think, okay, 3 p.m. Bruce, let's look for vans matching this description that are owned by guys named Bruce. Wouldn't you know it, it leads them right back to a guy named Bruce MacArthur, who was interviewed by the detectives working for Project Houston. He's Silver Fox, a screen name that was associated with two of the three previous missing persons cases that were under the purview of Project Houston. His criminal record seems very clean. Sort of. And this is Except the part- for that recent little incident. Yeah. In 2016, a few years after he was interviewed by Project Houston detectives, he was arrested for choking a guy in the back of his van. The victim escaped and called the police. But Bruce told the police it was all just a big misunderstanding. And so the charges were dropped. Which it just, took me you know, a minute. <laughs> that took He just me- misinterpreted the whole choking thing. Yeah, he tells the detectives he thought the guy was into rough sex and apparently he isn't, and so it got out of control. And um, okay, now the detectives. One wonders. One has to wonder. My thinking was one of the things that 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 I was struck by during all of this was the attitude of the police towards the gay community in Toronto. Yes. The detective said very clearly, there, you know. 
like there's bad history. We had difficulty communing with people. They didn't want to talk to us because during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the relationship between the cops and the gay community was not good. We did bad things and we got a lot to make up for. And I kind of felt like Bruce kind of slipped through that crack. Mm-hmm. He came in and he said, I thought he liked it rough. And they didn't want to seem judgmental of mm-hmm. the S&M faction in the uh, gay community. And so they took him at his word. And since the guy actually had escaped and, you know, I don't know how severely injured he was, they allowed it to be in an effort not to seem um, accepting of a different mm-hmm. lifestyle. That's what mm-hmm. I kind of felt happened in and around that. It was the overcompensation you know, for that, from that guilt, from previous bad behavior yeah. towards an intolerance towards the community. I, I I will just drop in here in, in the interest of promoting other podcasts. There is a podcast about uh, the case we're talking about, or I should say this part of the case we're talking about called The Village, which I recommend, which dives into a lot of these issues in more detail than we're going to go into here because we're sort of hyper-focused on the law enforcement side of it. So they go for the van they find out he got rid of the van two days after Project Prism was publicly announced. Wow, what time? Spooky. Once again, we have another computer cloning happen, happening. They get a warrant. They go into his apartment. They clone his computer. He comes back before they can finish, which is really again, suspenseful. Again, one of those moments of suspense that they created in a true crime TV show. I'm telling you, there there is some real, you know, there, yeah. there, there was some real storytelling going on here. I, w- I was impressed. Yeah, but they do manage to clone about 45% of his computer and the analysts immediately start going through the uh, material. Meanwhile, this was the thing that almost knocked me out of my chair. They find the Dodge Caravan at a wrecking yard and it's like two days away from being completely destroyed. Like what timing? Um, It's examined. They find blood and semen in the cargo area and one area of the blood stain is a match for Andrew Kinsman. In their search of his apartment, which I guess they were able to conduct, or look, help me out here, because this is, I think, a gap in my notes. They find the blood that's a match to Andrew Kinsman. Did they then immediately arrest Bruce MacArthur, or did they? Because the next step in the investigation no, is in they his didn't apartment. Invest, they did not invest arrest Bruce MacArthur until their sting operation. Okay. So they find photos of the victims killed and posed in MacArthur's bedroom. So those must have been found during the search of the apartment right before he came back when they were trying that, to clone they his got, computer. They got a partial clone of his computer right. before he came back. And they found, um, yeah, the 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 Najim, the, the Turkish gentleman. Um, Salim, and, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, puzz in fur coats and I'm not sure what and tied up and clear. It seemed clear from the photographs that they were dead, that they were but, right. But they were only photographs, so it didn't quite make the case. And so they didn't arrest him at that time and they followed. But they did pursue him and put a tracker on his car. So he's now right. He's under 24 seven surveillance and they're going to let him go wherever he wants unless he goes somewhere alone with another male then the detectives have immediate or the uh, officers have immediate yeah, they're not letting somebody else get hurt and that's what MacArthur does he tries to bring a guy up to his apartment 
The cops burst in and arrest him, and they find the very guy he picked up tied up and hooded in the bedroom. And if the reenactment is factual, the guy is losing his mind. He's freaking the fuck out. So freaked out by uh, MacArthur's behavior. And literally, uh, again, I don't know if it was true, but they untie him, and he throws his arms around the police officer and is sobbing. It was was quite the, uh, the event. And again... Very tense moments created in this particular, um, yeah. uh, in this particular true crime TV. So now we're sort of in the thick of the case that I knew about, and that I think you knew about from Vanity Fair. But MacArthur is brought in, and he's very nonchalant during his interrogation. I think that was a big part of why he was able to get away with this. He was so unemotional when questioned by oh, the yeah. police. He keeps saying, um, "I I don't want to miss. I have plans this evening. I don't want to miss my." Uh, my yeah. engagement. Like, how much longer is this going to take? That's his attitude about being brought in. Like, again, misunderstanding. We were just having a good time. It got. He was clearly, you know, misinterpreted my intentions. So, in his apartment, they're discovering a treasure trove of of um, evidence. They find Salim Essen's journal. They find a bracelet belonging to Skanda. And this is the first definitive link between Skanda and MacArthur. Remember, Skanda's disappearance sort of started all of this years before with the tip from Switzerland. Um, they discover a metal bar that was used as a winch to tighten the rope around the victim's throats. But they're not finding any actual forensic evidence of the victims, any bodies. And so it occurs to them, oh, MacArthur worked as a landscaper kind of all over town. We should start searching properties where he stored his equipment or where he worked on the literal property, the earth of the right. property. Landscaping. Pay dirt, if you'll forgive the expression. They find, they bring cadaver dogs with You've them. You've been waiting to say that. It actually <laughs> just came to me. It literally just came to me. I mean, they Inspired. find that they, they find it all. They find a blend of of uh, murder weapons and body parts in the areas where he was storing his landscaping equipment on site, but they remove these large planters entirely from one of the properties where he worked. They take them to forensic pathology, and the minute they cut them open, a skull comes out, a human skull, and it just goes on from there. And they find uh, the bodies of Andrew Kinsman, Sharush Mahmoudi, who they didn't even know was linked to any of these disappearances, but he was a Middle Eastern man who disappeared from the village years before. They find Skanda's remains, um, and they turn up other victims as well. And I think that that question of how those men were able to completely slip through the cracks, particularly the ones that weren't even known about, is really the thrust of what the village covers you know because these were and in many cases they were not out to their families or they were seeking asylum in canada because or the of, homeless guy yeah. that was really yeah. that one really broke my heart like like his like his luck wasn't hard enough yeah so in july of 2018 is really when they found a ravine behind a home where he stored his equipment that was that was kind of finished it off and that is where they eventually found the remains of Majid who was one of the original three that was investigated by Project Houston so and they found Skanda and they found well I think they found Skanda earlier in one of the yeah, first he was in one of the original planets yeah. which the detective said was the the emotional height of the experience for him because yeah. that had been the first person who had come to their attention from the the tip from the cannibal tracker from switzerland which 
you know, I guess in the long run it paid off, but it was kind of like, wow, what a red herring and a misdirect at the beginning of this investigation. I completely, I had totally read about this with the planters Mm -hmm. in Vanity Fair, and I completely did not see that that was where we were headed. I actually thought... Yeah. Almost before we got there. Because when I first saw this, um, this this particular uh, possibility, uh, when we were considering what to watch for True Crime TV Club, um, I thought, oh, is this going to be the one with the planters? And it mm-hmm. was like, mm. And then I read the description and it didn't seem to be. And so I thought the same I, I thing. I really... I was really, they surprised me. I did not know we were going to wind up here. And I didn't know the connection to um, leave the cats alone. Yeah. (laughs) Eric likes to retitle stuff in more whimsical ways to make up for the darkness within. So, yeah, the coda on this was that on January 29th, 2019, MacArthur was sentenced to life in prison for the first degree murders of eight men. Eight. That's how many they found. Ultimately, he will be eligible for parole when he's 91 years old. Uh, Since that case, Toronto police have reopened several cold cases to see if MacArthur is responsible for more murders. Yeah, really quite the it was. Yeah, it was a a tour de force. I I like this show and I liked it even more after this. I thought it was really impressive. I was impressed with their attitude. The, the attitude of the actual cop mm-hmm. about the gay community because they're included in the um, the the show itself. And then I was impressed with the the recreation and storytelling of the produ- and the production values of the, right. the show itself. They they actually achieved um, I, I think elements of dramatic tension that I've not seen in right. true crime TV shows often. Yeah. Well. Uh, this was as we did as we were talking about. I think earlier in this episode or the one before, we did true two like a tongue twister two true crime TV clubs back to back for a very reason. specific reason, which is that in our next episode we are marking a very grim milestone in the unsolved homicide of William Arnold Newton. Uh, it will be on October 29th of this year, 2020. When we're recording this, it will be the 30th anniversary of the discovery of his dismembered remains in a dumpster in Hollywood here where we, uh, Eric and I both live. Uh, this murder has haunted our community for three decades and we are trying to- We don't live to... in a dumpster, but we do no. live in the Hollywood, the greater Hollywood area. We do live in the greater Hollywood area. Um, we, uh, we will have some new information to share with you that we have acquired through the email address that we have set up to collect helpful information about this case. Our goal is to keep it from being forgotten and, keep the wheels of investigation churning. That address, if you have not heard us give it before, is William Newton Investigation at gmail.com. There are two L's in William and Newton is spelled N-E-W-T-O-N and there is no spaces or underscores or anything and it is a Gmail address. But I think next week we are going to have some stuff to talk about because we have... Uh, We've we continued to look yeah. into it. I, I don't know that we have prospects of solving it, but no. but I do like that we are keeping 
the flame alive. We are continuing to fo- keep focus on here. And if anybody out there has tips or ideas or thoughts or suggestions, you know, we are very much interested in hearing them because we are, to the extent that it's possible for us, continuing to investigate the sort of limited facts that are available to us in the hopes of inspiring somebody who is more likely to be able to solve the crime to maybe do that. Yeah, and I'll tell you this, and I think this comes from doing true crime TV club and watching a lot of these specials, but maybe watching them in a more focused way and taking notes on them. Cops don't like the term cold case. Um, Cops don't like the, the idea that a case that isn't solved is ever abandoned because for the original ones, at least it isn't like they never forget about the ones that they don't solve. And so in the eyes of law enforcement, it's, it's always open. It's always an open case. And it's just a matter of making sure people don't forget about it. And I think that's what we're trying to do with this one most of all. So anyway. Yeah, because this was, it was really close to home. And it's, it's an awful tragedy for this young man who, very young in life, to have been killed and, and treated in such a way. Uh, treated as if he's disposable. Yeah. Yeah. Just okay. like garbage. And uh, we will- horrifying. We will have more to talk about in our next episode. Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.